There are more than 250,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This is a national crisis, and there are thousands and thousands of families who have no answers about who killed their loved ones. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's Cold Case Investigative Team as we work to break the case for one of those families. If you're new to this podcast, please go back and start with episode one to learn more details about our investigation into Debbie Williamson's murder. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Break the Case. I was truly amazed at this technology. I do think there is a very good chance of success with this. The underwear was pulled down with the blue jeans, so we know that the suspect had to have touched those to pull them down. The most logical thing that I can think of is somebody tried to shame her. I feel like it's somebody that both of us knew, maybe somebody that she had dated once upon a time. I will lay you dollars to donuts that the name of the person who did this is in the books I've carried around for 35 years. We have a significant update to report, which developed just days before this episode was set to launch. Some listeners know that George and I were presenters this past summer at CrimeCon. CrimeCon is the largest true crime conference in the world and is held in a different U.S. city every year. It is attended by experts in various fields of forensic science and investigations, as well as law enforcement officials, victims' family members, and thousands of citizens with a keen interest in true crime. It is because of CrimeCon that George and I came to know Debbie's sister, Liz Flatt. Just hours ago, George and I met with the producer of CrimeCon, who presented us with the opportunity to represent this podcast you're listening to in just a few months at the 2022 conference. Next year's conference will be held in Las Vegas from April 29th until May 1st. We'll be sharing more details about our involvement in CrimeCon in the next episode. But we hope to see you there, whether in person or virtually. Now, on to episode five, and thank you for listening, subscribing, and spreading the word to help us find justice for Debbie Sue Williamson. Hey, George, I thought we could sit down for a few minutes and go over some of the latest developments that have been occurring in Debbie's case. The police have actually been pretty proactive, and I thought it'd be a good idea for us to discuss some of these new developments and let people know what's going on. Yeah, there is a lot going on right now. Mm-hmm. So the biggest one is that the Lubbock Police Department did reach out to the newly established Cold Case and Missing Persons Unit, which is under the Texas Attorney General's Office at the state level. And I'm just so excited about this because Lubbock PD reached out to them asking for their assistance on Debbie's case. And that means that we're going to have all these other investigators with great connections throughout the state helping to find Debbie's killer. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. You and I have been talking about this for months. This is probably about as good a development in this case as you could have at this point, you know, save actually arresting someone for her murder. You know, the state of Texas is huge. There's a lot of investigators. There's a lot of resources that I'm sure this cold case unit has that they can deploy on this case. And I'm thrilled. Exactly. And 
from what I've been told, the first line of business is to compile all of the evidence that was collected in Debbie's case at one location because some of the evidence is at Lubbock PD, some is at Department of Public Safety. So first line of order here is going to be for them to compile all the evidence in one place and then decide what evidence should take priority for DNA testing. And I know also right now Lubbock PD is in contact with at least three accredited DNA labs in the country. They are in discussions with them on what services can be offered, what evidence would be most probative, what should be tested first, and so on and so forth. So I think that's also a really positive sign. Yeah, absolutely. The thing about a cold case like this, it's going to take time because you've quite literally had four or five different sets of investigators who have looked into this case. So all their notes, all the evidence, everything pertaining to this case is in a lot of different places now. Absolutely. And as a reminder to listeners, they recently heard my interview with Francine Bardol, who's one of our country's leading experts in DNA extraction from difficult pieces of evidence. But she offered up her services for free at no cost to the Lubbock PD. Her services are using the MVAC, which is the forensic vacuum cleaner, essentially, and then her own Bardol method that she created. And both could be very applicable to different items of evidence in Debbie's case. So that was also a really exciting development that we already have one offer extended for services at no cost. It's kind of ironic to think that even almost after half a century since Debbie was murdered, that the newest DNA extraction techniques are finally going to potentially be deployed in her case, and it may finally bring justice to her and her family. It's exciting because you can actually see that the finish line is coming, hopefully. Yeah, and it's so refreshing to be in collaboration with the police department. I'm overwhelmed yes. with the outreach and the sharing of information. They have been very forthcoming with information. They have been very responsive to emails and things that we have sent them. You know, we've tried to streamline that process mainly through you and, and Liz just to make sure that we don't bombard them. Right, right. They've got a lot of stuff going on, but I've been impressed. As of right now, they're doing the job. Yeah, I'm just excited to hear that they're at least starting where they can with what evidence they have at the moment. Something else that we got some information on was that tire track found in the alley behind Debbie's house. Now, we don't know that that tire track belonged to her killer, mm -hmm. but we were able to talk to a couple people that are very well versed in tire tracks and we narrowed down the most likely tire that made that track. And so I'll put that out there and that's a Uniroyal Tiger Paw tire. Unfortunately, it was a very common tire for that time in the 70s. It was very common tire for passenger cars and muscle cars as well. And a lot of new cars, I'm told, during that era came with this type of tire on it. So unfortunately, I don't know whether that's going to be overly helpful or not. But I guess it can help us eliminate a few things like it probably did not belong to a pickup truck. So a piece of information like that could end up being helpful in the long run. You know, what's interesting about that is you're talking about alleyway. We've been down that alleyway I can't think of any reason why a car, anybody driving a passenger car or a muscle car would want or or even honestly need to drive down that alleyway. If it had come back a tire that was more common to a truck or like a big, like a, a trash truck or something like that, I think you could easily, it would be more easy to eliminate it then. But the fact that it belongs to a passenger car or muscle car, I don't know what your thought is on that, but it actually, 
it lends more credence to it possibly being connected than not. Yeah, that's actually an excellent point that I hadn't really thought of. We know it didn't belong to a trash truck. It's way too small of a tire to be on a trash truck. Right. And from what Doug and other people from the area have told us, they really only remember the the one vehicle that would go down that alley was the trash truck every week. So we can rule out that tire truck being from the trash truck. So you're right. Maybe that does lend more to it belonging to the killer's car. Yeah, I would think so. I didn't know the dimensions of the track, but just looking at it, it looks like something on a smaller vehicle, you know? Yeah, it is. It's a fairly narrow tire, not very wide. So more on that in the future. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things you're hoping for that magic day or just that magic moment when you get an email, a phone call, something that something's finally broke on this case. And so hopefully we are rapidly approaching that moment. There's clearly been some incredible progress on Debbie's case, but it remains an ongoing investigation happening in real time. Part of our investigation strategy is crowdsourcing and engaging the public to try and gain more information from the public. We're thrilled to report that our Facebook group, Unsolved Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson, now has hundreds of followers, many of whom are actively invested in helping us solve Debbie's case. And we continue to gain members daily. Through our discussions, we realized that many people who joined our group recently did not have a clear timeline of events. So, George, let's lay out what we have compiled about the events of the weekend of Debbie's murder. We've spent a lot of time sifting through documents, reading newspaper articles, talking to all kinds of people that knew Debbie and Doug, some of who were with them the weekend of her murder. And I really want to just lay out the chain of events that occurred leading up to her murder and then immediately afterwards and let the audience know what we can fill in in terms of that time frame. And for listeners out there that knew Debbie and Doug or the people that they were around that weekend, if this jogs any of your memories about events or memories of seeing Debbie or Doug that weekend, please let me and George know because we continue to try to fill in the entire timeline. So starting with Saturday, the day before the murder... George, what we've put together, it sounds like Debbie and Doug and their friends, Dorothy, Mike, and Paul, at least those five people went to the lake on Saturday. And I believe it's Buffalo Lake. Is that your understanding? Yeah, it's Buffalo Lake. It's just outside of Lubbock. Okay. And it sounds like they went out on a boat and did some water skiing, which was a pretty typical summer activity for this group of people. Yes. Now, based on what we've learned, it appears Doug left early that afternoon by himself from the lake because he had to go to work, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Doug would have went in around four, somewhere between four and five on a Saturday. So he had to leave a little early. In talking to witnesses who were there, Dorothy told us that everybody was in pretty good spirits, you know, out at the lake that day, that she commented that Debbie was an excellent water skier. Um, and that kind of impressed her. Her and her former husband, Mike, were friends with Doug and Debbie. Mike actually was the manager of another pizza inn there in Lubbock. And so they kind of knew each other through work. And so they were hanging out. So it sounds like Doug left the lake maybe around, I don't know, I'm guessing like 1.30 or 2 is what it sounds like. And then Paul was at work around 5 p.m. that day. Yes, yes. And I assume Debbie went home after the lake, but we actually aren't sure about that yet. So that's one piece of information we're trying to work on is what did Debbie do Saturday night? So if anybody saw her that night, 
We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Okay, so the day of the murder, which is Sunday, August 24th, Doug had worked late the night before, it sounds like. He and Debbie slept in, got up around midday, 11.30, noon, something like that. Debbie did some laundry around 4 o'clock. Doug hopped in the shower because he had a work shift coming up. So around 4 o'clock, he showers, gets ready, and leaves for work at 5, reportedly arriving at work at 5.05. And then... Debbie reportedly gets picked up by her parents and Liz around 7 p.m. And they head to dinner at the Pizza Inn where Doug is working to have dinner and celebrate her stepdad's birthday. Yes. Do I have that correct? Yeah. The stepdad's birthday, I believe, was the day before. And so they went out there to do that. Also of note, Paul was actually working as the cook that night at the Pizza Inn. So he was there when Debbie arrives with her family. That's correct. And then Marianne was also working with them throughout that evening. Yes, yes. The waitress who um, was there the entire night. Mm-hmm. So Debbie gets dropped off around 830 back at her house. From that point forward, we don't know what happened to Debbie. But right. we do know that she talked on the phone one time with Doug around 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. Doug had called her because his buddy co-worker Paul was going out on a date and wanted to know if he could stop at their house and use their shower. So that's why Doug was calling Debbie. Right. It sounds like Debbie may have made a comment that she was watching a movie that ended at 930 and that she was going to leave the house at that time to come over to the Pizza Inn and hang out. Right. Uh, The movie that the theorized she might have been watching was The Odd Couple. I also would like for people to understand that when we use the terms around a time, That could be a little bit before or a little bit after. So if we're talking about, let's say, 8.30, it could be maybe as early as 8.15. It could be as late as 8.45. So there's a window there. It's not a specific time. And again, with the case being 46 years old, and when you're talking to people, they do the best they can to remember times. But Jennifer, you know this as well as I do. Sometimes remembering specific times is hard. And even in some of the documents that we've examined from the time frame of when this happened, even then, some of the timing is a little bit off. And as far as the shower, we're not sure if Debbie knew that Paul wasn't going to come. We've come across some information that maybe she didn't know, that maybe Doug just called her and said that, but we don't know for sure. Exactly. What we do know is Doug called her again around 10 p.m. and every hour after that and never got an answer from her again. Yes. So that does narrow down the time of death to probably between 9 and 10 that evening. It wasn't until after the restaurant closed and all the patrons had left that Doug had the opportunity to actually drive to his house. That was around 1 in the morning, 1 to one ten in the morning. He left the pizza inn, drove the five minutes to his house, and unfortunately that's when he found Debbie's body in their backyard. Right. After he found her, he was unsure whether the killer was still on site or in the house. And so probably subconsciously, he felt the safest place that he could go to quickly and access a phone was back at work. And so that's what he did was jumped in his car, drove five minutes back to work, called the police immediately. Yeah, I don't think we can underestimate the shock value when somebody, especially, you know, at this time, I think Doug was maybe 20 at the time. You know, he comes home and finds his newlywed wife murdered, stabbed to death. So, you know, that him going back to the Pizza Inn actually makes a lot of sense. I know some people out there are thinking, well, why didn't he go to a neighbor or something like that? 
but you also got to remember the mindset of the person who this is emotionally impacting. And so he just went back. His first instinct was to go to the safest place that was in his conscience, and that was back at work, which was only a couple of minutes away, by the way. We don't, he didn't have to drive across town or something like that. So Exactly. After Doug went back to the Pizza Inn, he came into the restaurant and told the people that were there, Paul, Lex, and Marianne, that Debbie had been raped. And so Lex and Paul get into Lex's car and they drive out to the house. And so they arrive on scene and then Lex actually goes up to her body to check and see if she has a pulse and she doesn't have a pulse. So Doug, a few moments after Lex and Paul arrive on scene, he arrives at the house at this point, everyone is well aware that they need to stay away from her body and wait for the police to arrive, which the police arrive in short order after that. And then Doug, Paul, and Lex stay on scene for an undisclosed amount of time. We don't know exactly how long they were there. And then at some point, Debbie's parents show up. And so uh, her stepdad, Bob, he sees her body. He sees that she's been stabbed. He sees that her clothing has been moved, you know, her pants had been pulled down and her shirt had been pulled up. And he actually went into the house that night with investigators to look around to see what was going on. And, you know, when they go into the house, they don't find any evidence of a disturbance, meaning they didn't find any evidence that someone had gone in the house and attacked Debbie there. So the attack portion of this thing was confined to the carport area from what they could tell just through a visual search of the house. Now, that doesn't mean that the killer didn't go in the house. That just means that there was no evidence of the attack happening in the house. And Bob had made some notes of some items that he saw in clear view. There were some towels that were seen, a cup that had had some liquid in it. It was also noted that the TV was turned off. And so the fact that Debbie had her puzzle book, her purse, her keys, the TV's off, everything indicates that she was on the verge of heading out the door or was compelled to head out the door when the killer arrives. I agree. And um, one more thing is that all, almost all the lights in the house were off. Sounds like except for the kitchen light and possibly the utility room light by the back door. So yes. that is another indicator that when she left that house, she was planning to leave. Yes. Then Paul returns to the Pizza Inn at some point. Marianne was, was there the entire time. And at some point, they decided that they need to lock the pizza in up. It was mentioned several times in the documents that we've examined that they were very worried about this deposit being made. And they actually didn't find the money in the cash register until the next morning. And then the next morning, we know probably before Doug even talked to the police, he and Bob, Debbie's stepdad, were at Rest Haven Funeral Home making arrangements for her funeral. That's correct, yes. And going back to the deposit, sometimes in building a timeline, things that did not happen are just as important as things that did. Indeed. And I think that's the case here is that Doug never had the opportunity to leave the restaurant that evening to make the nightly deposit like he normally would. It was just too busy. And like we've discussed before, that was actually a blessing in disguise for him because had he left to just go make that bank deposit, he would have been out of pocket for a little while without an alibi. And that would not have probably worked out well for him. In 1975, Lubbock, Texas, it's very possible that he would be in prison for this, for a murder that he almost certainly didn't commit. Correct. So one more thing in our timeline that's of great interest to me that we're still working on is that around the day of Debbie's funeral, which was three or four days after she was killed, 
a set of keys went missing from her mom's purse inside her mom's home. And this stood out enough to Joyce Lemons and alarmed her enough that she contacted police about the missing keys because on that keychain was a key to Debbie's car and a key to Debbie and Doug's home. It is still, as far as we know, unknown where those keys disappeared to. However, they reappeared several days later under a couch cushion in Joyce and Bob's home. And they swore up and down that they had searched that couch several times looking for these keys and they were adamant the keys had not been there. So this is another really strange fact that we are running down trying to get more information on, but it really makes me wonder, George, if the killer did go in Debbie and Doug's house after the murder and left something there and realized it and knew that that item would lead directly back to them. And so they felt compelled to get a hold of keys to go retrieve it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I can't understand why a killer would steal the keys, go into the house for whatever reason, and then return the keys. Now, we need to to be clear about a couple of these things. The keys were found under a couch cushion, and, and in full disclosure, the keys were found on or around September 10th, 1975, nearly 20 days after her murder. I guess at this point, you know, anybody listening to this, if you have any thoughts about why a killer would do something like this. And I want to be clear about this. We're not certain that the killer did this. Correct. This was just something that came up during the course of the investigation that it just needs to be vetted. Just do the due diligence and figure out what this means. It may mean nothing. George, you and I have gotten in touch with so many people. I mean, we said this previously when we were in Lubbock that we had already gotten a hold of many, many people connected to this case. But over the past couple months, we've even obviously added to that list of people that we've gotten in touch with. And I'm not here to expose the specific information that these sources have given us, but I did just want to do like a general rundown of who we've talked to. And essentially, we've gotten in touch with several classmates, friends, and former co-workers of both Debbie and Doug. We got a hold of Doug's best friend, Lennis. You met with him. Mm-hmm. We met with Doug's ex-girlfriend. We've talked to Paul. We've talked to um, the person Paul was out on a date with that night. Mm -hmm. Other people who had hung out with Debbie in the weeks before her murder. We have attempted to get a hold of Lex and have been unsuccessful there. Yeah. When you're working on a case like this and there's so many moving parts, so many people that you got to track down. I mean, I don't know if we've mentioned or not, but I think we've tracked down nearly 30 people Mm -hmm. in connection to this case at this point. And to be honest, I have just been pleasantly shocked by how willing a lot of people have been to talk. Now, I have also been shocked by the fact that one or two have been hard, if not impossible, to get a hold of because it doesn't seem like there would be any reason why they wouldn't talk. But people do have their own reasons and rationales for doing or not doing what they do. So, But we're not going to stop. Nope. So if anybody out there thinks we're going to quit on this, don't think that because we're going to keep going. And uh, Lubbock PD actually has access to our spreadsheet of all the people we have talked to. And that spreadsheet has people's contact information, a general overview of what they've told us. And and Lubbock PD is going to be doing their own re-interviewing of all these people. So like you said, (laughs) the ones out there that don't want to talk don't think that this is going away because it's not going to. Right. One final update is that we also established a confidential tip email And the purpose of this email is for people who 
maybe don't want to talk to law enforcement directly, feel more comfortable talking to you or I. And so we've set up this email where people can send in tips. And I promise that I will strip any identifying information about the sender from the email. And then I will forward the tips on to Lubbock Police Department. And that email is tips at justiceforDebbie.com. And the four is the number four. We will also list that email on our Facebook page and everywhere else that is covering this case. When a crime is committed, clues live within digital devices. That's digital forensics. Learn how to process and analyze that data by earning a Bachelor's of Science in Digital Forensics from American Military University. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more about AMU's digital forensics degree by visiting amuonline.com slash forensics. Some of the most important clues in homicide cases come from the victim themselves. Reviewing the autopsy report and analyzing their injuries reveals critical details about a murder, the manner in which the attack happened, and even clues about the killer themselves. Although I've attended many death scenes and autopsies, I am far from an expert in knife wounds. So George and I sought out a knife expert to help us decipher the clues Debbie's injuries could reveal about the weapon and her killer. The murder weapon is always a critical piece of evidence in any homicide case. Although the knife used to kill Debbie was never retrieved, we knew her autopsy photos and report could provide insight into what type of knife was used. It could provide clues about her killer. We wanted to obtain more information on the type of knife that was likely used. So we reached out to Jeff Schaefer, who is a professional knife maker and has been studying and creating knives for years. He has helped with other homicide investigations and was readily agreeable to sitting down with us to analyze Debbie's murder. A note to listeners that this next segment includes some graphic discussion of Debbie's wounds. Listener discretion is advised. Well, first, I just want to thank Jeff for joining us. That's my pleasure. I had shared a couple of photos with you of Debbie's wounds. During Debbie's autopsy, the doctor who conducted the autopsy had opined that a double-edged bladed knife was used to stab her. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think it was uh, a double-edged blade. At least part of the blade was double-edged. The knife that I have brought here is an M3 trench knife, and some of the wounds are symmetrical. So that would indicate a double-edged dagger blade. But some of the other wounds have kind of a squared off back to them, which if the knife was stabbed deep enough into a person, that would leave a profile of like a single-edged blade. Okay. You mentioned that some of the wounds look very symmetrical, which would indicate the blade on both edges of the knife, but then some may not indicate that. So does that tell us that maybe the knife was not stabbed as far into her body as it could have been for some of those injuries? Correct. On the ones that look more like a dagger, they would be shallower wounds. Gotcha. And what do you think the approximate width of that knife blade was? Do you think it was pretty slim or do you think it was wide? I think it was probably fairly narrow. The one I have is three quarters of an inch. Of course, whenever you're fighting and you're being stabbed and trying to get away from the knife, it cuts bigger the hole is going to be bigger than what the knife actually is. Right, if the victim is fighting back, correct? Right, she's struggling. Or just if they pull it out at a different angle than what they put it in. Mm -hmm. 
So do you think some of the more shallow wounds could be because the knife blade hit, say, a bone, like her rib? It could be, yes. Okay. It could be. Like, there were some, like, were just almost tiny pinpoints. Mm-hmm. And those could have been, like, where he just barely stabbed through and hit a bone and stopped. And then other times it just might not have got enough force to got past. Because once you get to the uh, thicker part of the blade, it requires more force to stab it deeper. Okay. Considerably more force. I think the initial attack was probably done with the knife held in a ice pick type grip. So overhand. And yes. Uh, Jeff, do you have any opinion as far as like the grip style? Well, there's two reasons to use this grip is one that it feels incredibly powerful for stabbing. But also the main thing is that you can conceal the blade very easily. There's no way you could see that in the dark. So this could be like he's standing there and he wants to go after and completely surprise attack. Right. So he could have had his hands at his side. The knife is in his hand and she would have no idea. She would not know until the attack started. And the very first wound could have been as he was reaching for her, coming down is where he cut the ear off because he was reaching for her at that time. So the knife Sticks out a little more horizontally. I think you said that at some point there was a couple of other stab wounds to the head, but they weren't that grievous. I wouldn't call it a stab wound, but more like a slash. Okay. And at that point, then he uh, stabs a few times and she collapses. And then that's when he gets the deep one in her side of the ribs and it wedges in there. So our scenario was that she had her back to this person and was walking towards her car when she was first attacked. And she does have abrasions on her her knees and her chin and appears her forearms, which indicated to us that maybe she was attacked first from the back and she went down on her front. And then the killer was able to get some control, but then she was able to get herself turned over because it's really hard to fight somebody off when they're behind you. I don't know what your thought is on that either. Right, yeah, I think that would have been certainly a possible scenario. Okay. I think that he never changed grips because that's that's difficult to do right. whenever you're fighting. Right. If she fell away from him, he could have stabbed it in from one angle, or if she was still just like down on her knees and he stabbed it, it would go in at a different angle. Okay. And do you have any opinion on whether the killer had the knife in his right or left hand? I think it was probably the right hand. Okay. What leads you to that conclusion? Just based on some of the angles of the injuries, I didn't actually see the picture of the ear, so I don't know which ear it was. We don't have one, unfortunately, but it was her right ear. Oh, yeah. Her right ear? Mm-hmm. Okay. Jeff, do you think it had, well, maybe you can explain the word hilt to our audience, but also do you think that it had a decent-sized hilt on it that protected the killer's hand? Uh, yes. In this case, this is one example of this type of knife. I've got hundreds of books on knives, and I couldn't find very many knives that had this uh, blade profile. And uh, most of them were military knives, so they had a guard. The M3 was the original knife. There was two and a half million of these particular knives made in one year. So I guess in your opinion, looking at those stab wounds, do you think it's possible that this was a military-style knife that was used? I think it probably was. How long would you say that is? Four to five inches right there? Yeah, it's about three or four inches to there. Okay. And then further on, the total length is about six. Okay. So that definitely fits within the parameters of of the wounds that Debbie had to her body. Mm -hmm. Right. And Jeff, how slippery would that hand grip have gotten during this attack? It probably would have gotten pretty slippery. Uh, It's got grooves in the handle. 
that was an attempt to make it less slippy in a fight. Do you think that the killer could have potentially cut their own hand during this attack? I think it's entirely possible. Okay. Yes. Despite the hilt. Right. Right. So, Jeff, how would you protect this knife on a regular basis? Like, if it's something that a person carried on their belt, for example, how would they protect themselves from not slicing themselves open by accident with that sharp blade? It comes with a fiberglass reinforced sheath. Okay. Is it a a dagger or a knife that could have been carried on someone's belt? Yes. Yes, it could have been. Okay. It could be slid into their pants as a concealment option. Or a boot, maybe? It's a little bit large for a boot. Is it? Okay. But like a cowboy boot, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Because to me, it seems like it's obviously not your typical pocket knife, right? Right. You can't just slip it in your pocket. And so it seems to us like if someone walked on the property with this in their hand, I mean, the intent was to kill her. Yeah, I absolutely believe that 100% that he was there just to kill her. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's no evidence that the blade of this knife broke. So what does that tell you about the knife? Well, it it was well constructed and the heat treat was very well done, which makes the knife tough and strong. And in this case, with a knife, the heat treat is higher. It holds the edge better. In general, the quality of the knife used on Debbie was probably pretty high, right? Since it doesn't appear that it broke. It was good. It was well designed for its purpose. You texted me something else that I found fascinating, and that was the slash to her left armpit area. Right. I think on that wound is the knife got stuck between her ribs, and he had to use full force, probably his whole weight, to get that knife out. He's working it back and forth. I think that's why the wound is so so huge. He's working it back and forth, and it was stuck in the bones. Okay. I know that knives do get stuck in in the bodies. I have a friend who is a, he's a federal parole officer. He teaches at Fletzy now, but he said that he's been to cases where a person has actually dragged a person across the floor with a knife embedded in their body. Really? Oh, wow. I never would have imagined that. Yes. Yeah. He, he said he's seen it happen more than once. And is that usually because it gets wedged between ribs or is... Right. Okay. If the knife is strong enough, it can penetrate like the sternum or cartilage. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it's tough to cut, but it it will penetrate. Mm -hmm. And then so it's hard to get back out. Debbie did have the largest knife wound or injury that she had, What from what we can tell, was to her left armpit. And I'm going to estimate that that the length of that wound was probably at least three inches, maybe four. It was pretty significant compared to the rest. And Jennifer, you think that that might have been the most or one of the most devastating injuries that she suffered, right? It's hard to tell because I don't know which specific stab wound sliced into the right atrium of her heart. But whichever one that was, I would deem as the most serious. But the thing was, she had at a minimum two other fatal wounds as well, which was the two that penetrated both her lungs and caused them to collapse and then fill with blood. And it wasn't just two wounds. There was several to each lung. So she had multiple stab wounds that would have resulted in her death, just not immediately. None of them were immediately fatal. Like Jennifer said, that her lungs filled with blood. And at some point, pretty quick in the fight, I think that she was struggling just to breathe. And so she was making a lot of probably horrendous noises and stuff. And some of those stab wounds may have been just trying to make it stop. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, because that is an uncomfortable situation for a killer to be in. Like, the reality of what you've just done 
your victim's not dead yet. Yes. And unless you penetrate the brain, that's no stab wound's going to be instantly deadly. Something else I want to ask you, just to clarify on the double-edged part, what would be different if a serrated knife had been used or if a just single-bladed knife had been used? I think a serrated knife would have a rougher edge to it. In terms of the wound, one of the sides would be more jagged. Right. And would the same hold true if the blade had just had one side sharpened? If the blade had just had one side sharpened and it was sharp, it would cut smoothly. The duller the knife is, the the less pronounced the edge would be. Sure. Okay. And I think this knife was pretty pretty sharp. And the main wound that is in her arm into the ribs, that is the main one that shows both edges of the knife. Uh, you can see it cleanly. Mm-hmm. It looked like it was in front of her arm. So when he pulled it out, he was putting his weight on it. And he sliced her arm pretty bad as it was coming out, looked like. Okay. Is there anything about these stab wounds that indicate the level of criminal sophistication on behalf of this killer as to whether they had maybe done this before or whether they were criminally unsophisticated, as we call it nowadays? The overhead stab at the beginning, I think that was showing how emotional he was at the time. He was angry or very intentional. I don't know if he had practiced or if he had any previous experience on that, but the overhead stab is just like full force coming at her and uh, that I think that had to be like at the beginning of the fight. Yeah, what you said about her ear being the first wound makes total sense now. Yeah, that's that's what I think happened with the ear. Yeah, and that would make sense too because any as that motion's happening, he's knocking her to the ground simultaneously, and that's how the attack starts. And plus, this is a very small space. Yes, I've seen the diagram. Whenever you do that, you pull the person in closer to you, and then I think a couple stabs to the back that way. And then she goes down. Okay. Yeah, we estimate there was maybe 24 inches of space that this attack occurred within, in terms of the width of the space. That's really close. Yeah, it's it's close quarters for sure. Well, this has been so insightful. I can't thank you enough (laughs) for joining us and giving us all this information. I have learned so much today. Anytime. After speaking with Jeff... George and I both had so many new thoughts and ideas about Debbie's murder. The next day, I called him to discuss some of those new revelations. Hey, Jen, what's going on? First of all, I learned so much from Jeff. (laughs) He was like, Uh, I'm so glad we brought him in for an interview. Yeah. He was fascinating. I think that's so helpful. I got back out the photos from... The autopsy, and I was looking at him last night and this morning. He gave us so much insight into the angle of the wounds. I never imagined how difficult it was to stab somebody. I mean, I know about all the bones in the body and stuff, but you just don't picture that being much of an obstruction, but he made it clear that it is. Yeah, just seeing him like sitting in here and him pulling out that dagger and showing how easy it is to hide. And just seeing him doing that and then seeing the pictures of her wounds, I could totally see exactly what he was saying, almost blow by blow after that. Yeah. I mean, I agree with him. It had to be overhand grip, don't you think? 100%. No doubt about it. It's the level of control. I mean, like I gripped it both ways. It wasn't even close. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not experienced at handling knives. I just assume that people hold a knife like they hold like a kitchen knife or anything like that. And... 
not even just the overhand grip, the knife that he brought us, it was the first four inches of the, the shaft of the knife were double edged. Mm hmm. And then it was single edge down one side. Mm -hmm. And he told us, he thought, this is probably the kind of knife that was used because some of the wounds, the way some of those wounds were sharp all the way through and then others like dulled to a degree on the edges. Yeah. So, yeah. and then, you know, he brought that paper cardboard cut out and he punctured it with the knife at different widths and how far he plunged the knife in. And when you got toward the middle of that cardboard card, looked a lot like some of the wounds that she had. And that was the four or five inch plunge. I was just absolutely fascinated with everything he said. Me too. So here's something though that I'm really pondering. So if you look at the picture of the wounds on Debbie's back, so if we divide her back into like upper and lower, and when I say lower, I mean literally from the lower half down, not just like mm -hmm. lower by the kidneys. If you divide it in upper and lower, the wounds to the upper, are vertical and mm -hmm. are probably shallow because the knife probably hit her ribs or her um, shoulder blades. But if you look at the lower half ones, they're horizontal. So now I'm like, did the killer rotate his grip on the knife partway through because the upper wounds weren't achieving the goal that he'd hoped? Or did the killer's body position change in relation to Debbie? But something right. happened between these sets of wounds. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. I almost would be inclined to think that his body position moved somehow. I mean, we've really wondered about how much blood he got onto himself. You almost wonder if maybe one of the initial wounds was causing a lot of blood to seep out, and he was trying to get it to where he wasn't just going to be completely soaked. So maybe he changed his body position. Because... Mm -hmm. The thing that would make less sense to me is him changing his hand grip position. And it would seem to me like if you're in the middle of a violent, murderous stabbing spree, you're going to want to keep the knife in your most comfortable position where you have the maximum control for it. And that's the way you've gripped it in your hand before. So I would think that he changed body positions. Which, if that's the case, then he would have to be at a 90 degree angle to Debbie. He'd have to be kneeling at her left or right side if his grip didn't change. Right. But I don't know if that's possible in that space. We gotta remember, without actually being there to witness what happened, we don't know what is possible. We could assume that, but we can't say that it is because we don't know. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. It'd be harder for sure, but not impossible. No, not at all. Neither one of us has the answer to this. It's just something that came to light to me when I examined these photos again. The other thing that was so interesting to me was about her ear. And mm -hmm. um, I went back and was reading the autopsy report about the injury to that right ear. And it doesn't specifically say the wound was from the top down, but I think it was. That's how... Mm -hmm. That's the impression I got. If Jeff's right and Debbie's upright, of course, for the beginning of this assault and the knife comes down from overhead and catches her ear, I was wondering if that slash to her right cheek came through in that same motion. Like, 
part like oh yeah does that make sense like yeah. the tip of the blade may yeah. have caused that slash at the same time that it's going through her ear yeah actually that would make more sense than anything we've come up with until now so definitely i think it came from over top and when he was describing that initial attack you know she has her back to her killer mm-hmm. the killer's got the knife in his right hand and it starts with that person coming over the top of her like that I could just see it. It just made total yeah. sense to me. We've discussed this for months now as far as like the wounds to her knees, the wounds to her chin. I just totally see how that the attack started like that. And I mean, if the first salvo of the attack is she nearly got her ear completely or almost got it all cut off, can you imagine the shock that went through her body? Oh, exactly. I mean, you've literally just lost your ear and you're being knocked to the ground. Mm -hmm. It might help explain why there weren't seemingly as many wounds to the perpetrator as we might have expected because she might have just been in utter shock from the beginning. Right. Like you said, the shock value, it would almost probably be more confusing as a victim. And it's going to take you a second or two to even realize what has gone on. But to realize your ear is almost cut off and like your brain has so much to process in such a short amount of time but it still requires that amount of time to realize okay my ear hurts the pain has to be sent up the nerves to your brain to comprehend that okay something's wrong with my ear she's still going to be able to hear but it's like what am I hearing it's dark I can't see what's going on with me there's just so much for her brain to process, and I'm betting it took several seconds for her brain to be like, oh, I'm in a fight of my life situation, and I need my adrenaline to kick in in order for me to try and survive this, don't you think? Yeah, I can see that completely. When we talked about this several months ago, you said that you thought that she was in just in complete shock for the first you know, 10, 15 seconds maybe. And I pushed back on a little bit, but if her ear got cut, I wouldn't push back on it. I would be like, okay, yeah, she could have been incapacitated for a few seconds just because of that. Yeah, and probably her hand, I would guess her right hand went up to her ear too. And she's trying to, again, trying to figure out what's actually going on. And in the meantime, she's probably getting pushed to the ground. So Mm -hmm. I reread the autopsy again. She does have abrasions to her forearms, her knees, her chin, and her forehead which all, and abrasions are scrape injuries. They're not, you know, slash or cut injuries. So the abrasions are most likely from her going down on her front side. Yeah, yeah. Jeff made this much clearer in my mind what I think happened now. We can't say beyond all certainty, but I think we can say with a lot of certainty and confidence that she had her back to her killer. Yeah. She had her back to her killer. She was walking away, walked past him. Now, I'm not saying that they confronted each other. It's still possible she walked out the door and the person sprang and she didn't know they were out there. Mm-hmm. So it's it doesn't eliminate an ambush. But it also, I think, gives a little more credence to the fact that she knew who her killer was and the killer and her actually confronted each other at the door. Um, I think it probably lends a little more credence to that. And another thing I think we're going to have to start looking into is... Does anybody have this military-style knife that was produced during World War II? Right. Yeah. You know, that was um, of great interest he, too, to me. I think that probably what we're going to need to do is talk to Liz and talk to some other people, talk to some of the friends and family, 
from that time and see if there's any pictures, mm-hmm. you know, that, that people have of, you know, get togethers, gatherings, anything like that. And to see if anybody has these types of knives. Jeff explained that it is a knife you could carry on your person. It seems mm-hmm. less likely to me. I mean, this is just my personal opinion. It seems like a dagger seems less likely to me that someone would carry on their belt or whatever, but I could totally see a person having that under their car seat, you know, under their driver's seat while they're driving for protection or in their glove box or something Mm -hmm. like that would make more sense to me in terms of a dagger. It's not a pocket knife. Right. I don't think this person carried it around like as a pocket knife or something like that, but if it's in their car, they might've pulled it out and showed their friends. Yeah, definitely. It's possible that there might be just some random picture out there of somebody holding a knife like this that was in this circle of friends and family. That's true. That, I mean, it, it could just be something very, you know, random. No, you're right. It's one of those things that someone might know, but doesn't realize that it's an important piece of information. I mean, we come across that consistently, so. Yes, and it may be another key to solving this thing. Yeah. And again, Jeff made it clear this had to be a good quality knife blade. This had to be a good quality knife because we know for sure that it hit Debbie's bones, ribs, probably shoulder blade several times and did not break. Absolutely. And going back to the number of wounds to her body, you know, we've talked a lot about this with other experts and you and I have postulated ourselves about the number of wounds. I think that we can confidently say this now, that whatever knife was used, this knife, our knife that killed Debbie, was well-made and it was made for a specific purpose. And that purpose was probably for killing a human. Yeah. And I think that we can confidently say that, or it was modeled after a knife that was, you know, a military-style knife that was made for killing humans. My husband hunts, you know, goes deer hunting every year, elk hunting. He does not have any knife like that. He has many knives, none like that. You don't, that's not the type you use. It's not a fillet knife. That's not what you use for fish. I mean, I don't know what other purpose there is for that knife. There's none. Yeah. When we're thinking about potential suspects or people that could be involved in this, maybe some of our criteria now, you know, would have to be somebody with a military background or somebody who has connections to somebody with a military background because it's clearly obvious that they had access to a knife that would be very easy to get if you were in the military. Yeah, and specifically a connection to someone from World War II, don't you think? Because this was the knife, I mean, Jeff explained, this style knife was developed for World War II, a specific year. And although a World War II veteran could have committed this crime, that would put the person at, what, in their 50s? We're just going to assume at this point the killer's probably a male. A male in his 50s is going to have a much more effective time controlling Debbie, especially if they're a military veteran. Then just slit her throat. They're not going to need to stab her 17 times to subdue her. I mean, that part to me is really unsophisticated. That is a fantastic point. You're right. I mean, we do need to pare this down a little bit because if it was somebody in the military who had that kind of training, we're talking about a person who has been trained in the methodologies of war going up against a slender 18 year old girl in the dark. Yeah. 
you're right. That person would have just slashed her throat because they would know that would be the easiest way to kill her. Yeah. And the chance of you getting a bunch of blood on you are much less. You slash her throat, you let her fall to the ground and just sit there and wait about two minutes and she's gone. So. Yeah. Because um, the, the blood, although it would be an arterial cut, which would result in probably blood spraying, but the killer's behind her. So they're not going to get the blood on them. And like you said, just let her fall to the ground and bleed out. Right. I just feel like a military veteran would have done it that way. The way that this was done, to me, just says inexperienced. Right. Well, it says inexperienced, and it says something else potentially, too, that the person who killed her wanted that close contact when they were killing her. Like it was maybe even a subconscious desire to be that close to her so that she would know for those two or three minutes that that person was right there connected to her and that she was going to die and that was at the hands of this person who she wronged. That is a great point because if you approach her from behind and slit her throat, she's never going to know who did this to her. But if you stab her like the way that she was, she darn well knows who she was fighting off for those couple of minutes. So you're Right. right. That could be a clue into the person's subconscious too. And, you know, like we learned a couple weeks ago, a multiple stabbing homicide can be symbolic of a sexual encounter. And that may be another clue to the killer's subconscious and something that they wanted from Debbie, but were unable to get. Yeah, agreed. You know, in the beginning, when we started looking at this, I remember telling you, there's no way to ever determine the order of stab wounds. But I think he actually did help us. I mean, we can't say one through 17 in exactly this order, but I think we have a decent idea in terms of grouping which ones mm-hmm. came before the last ones. So, and he was really helpful on that. That initial wound that he talked about coming over the top and slashing the ear and the face. So I guess we were kind of assuming, okay, this could have just been a happenstance injury. But after talking to him, it seems like there's actually direction because I could never understand how her ear gets nearly cut off if they're on the ground. But like you said, she's got a wound to that cheek, that ear gets cut. I think we could probably be pretty confident that was the first wound. And that it came from behind her because I always believed that the killer was holding the knife in their right hand and Jeff provided validation on that because of the angle of some of those injuries. And so if she's facing her killer and the killer has a knife in his right hand, how is he slashing her right ear, which is across her body from his hand? You know, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It would be her left ear that got slashed, if anything. Right. Like you've said several times, she was stabbed. The killer didn't take the knife and slash her. He was stabbing her. So it's almost like she was almost permanently incapacitated from the very first blow. But we know from her autopsy, well, we know that she didn't die immediately. Right. So that ear getting cut off would really explain a lot. Yeah. And I, again, in rereading the report, so 10 of the 17 wounds are to her backside, plus the ear. So that brings us Mm -hmm. to 11. And then I think they actually counted the slash on her cheek as one. So that brings us to 12, which leaves five remaining to the front side. Mm -hmm. But really, the ones to her front aren't to her chest area. (laughs) 
And they did say that she had defensive wounds on her forearm. So I think she's still somewhat conscious as she gets turned over. But mm-hmm. that big wound that we discussed with Jeff to her left armpit, I almost think that's got to be the one that hit her heart. And then, of course, yes. probably from that point forward, within a couple seconds, she is subdued. And then maybe a couple more stab wounds because it's going to take the killer a few seconds to figure out if she's subdued or not. It's not like he's pausing in between each stab to assess her. Right. You know, I'm almost wondering if the killer has the initial thrust with the knife, jumps on her back, knocks her down. She flips over pretty quickly during the attack and fights him off for a while. And then somehow she gets back onto her, like her hands and knees, and she tries to literally crawl away from him. You know what I mean? No, I think the only reason I push back on her ending up on her stomach is because we know for a fact that she was on her back when dragged to the back step. And I don't know why the killer would take the time in the carport to flip her over and then drag her. It's usually the path of least resistance, which indicates to me that she was subdued when she was on her back. Well, here's the thing, though. We can't rule out that part of this was sexual gratification for the killer. And he wanted to see her private parts. Yeah. And so he may have flipped her over because he knew that he was going to do that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, again, we can't completely rule it out. Right. I definitely think that Jeff helped us funnel this in a certain direction now. I'm telling you, when he pulled that dagger out, I'm even getting goosebumps now. I'm like, this is the weapon. Next time on Break the Case talking to everybody, we all universally agree. The person who did this knew Debbie, knew Doug, knew their habits, knew the schedule, knew when someone was going to be home, someone wasn't. This wasn't just a random act. It makes me think that there was a subconscious reason that this person did not attack her face. Like, they almost wanted to preserve her face, and she was a good-looking girl. They took her from a very dark location to a better lit one which is the exact opposite of what usually happens. If you guys are in, let's do it. I think it would be a lot of fun. And just the idea of getting the name and the case and the story out there can't hurt. We'll give you a podcast road table, but let's get you on stage and actually do the case itself. Join AMU's cold case team and follow me, Jen Buchholz, and George Jared on our investigation into who really killed Debbie Sue Williamson. If you'd like to be a part of our effort and follow along, please join our Facebook group titled Unsolved Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson. You can also follow us on Twitter at the handle BreakTheCaseAMU. Tips may be sent to tips at justiceforDebbie.com. Anyone reporting tips is assured confidentiality. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leechen Kranick and Andy Crow with support from Lisa Tanis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Special thanks to the Casebreakers, an investigative partner of AMU. Subscribe to Break the Case on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.